Well, good afternoon. I want to thank you, Hardy Souls, for coming out uh, today in the middle of summer when uh, I told Charles we were going to do a forum uh, on August 22nd uh, in Washington. And he told me I was nuts, uh, which may well be the case, but this is an important anniversary, so we did want to mark it. Uh, I'm Michael Tanner. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the Director of Health and Welfare Studies here at the Cato Institute. And on behalf of Cato, I do want to wa welcome you all to the F.A. Hayek Auditorium and the Cato Institute. Today marks the 10th anniversary of the signing of welfare reform, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act. Uh, only in Washington would you have a welfare reform bill that doesn't mention the word welfare anywhere in it. Uh, but, uh, but 10 years ago, uh, Bill Clinton uh, signed welfare reform. It was the third attempt uh, at welfare reform. Two earlier versions had passed that he refused to sign. He did sign this one. Uh, it may have been the last bipartisan action that Washington has seen. Uh, and I think it's important, as we reflect back on the 10 years of welfare reform, to, to look at what the critics of welfare reform were saying at the time. Uh, people who uh, opposed welfare reform were warning, in the words of one critic, that wages will go down, families will fracture, millions of children will be made more miserable than ever. There was one very frequently cited uh, study that said that a million uh, to a million and a half children would be thrown into poverty if welfare reform passed. Uh, this wasn't enough for Jim McDermott, a uh, Democrat from Washington, who raised that to two and a half million children would be thrown into poverty uh, if it passed. Uh, you could see there was you know, all sorts of uh, folks on the, on the airwaves and in the newspapers uh, painting pictures of families sleeping on the grates in our city, the mass starvation... Uh, New York Times talking about the devastating effect uh, on our cities if welfare reform passed. Uh, Senator Frank Lautenberg uh, predicted that uh, U.S. Uh, cities would look like Brazil. He said there'd be hungry and homeless children walking our streets begging for money, begging for food, and even engaging in prostitution. Uh, the Nation magazine, one of, one of my favorite articles at the time on welfare reform, said very bluntly, said, if welfare reform is passed, people will die, businesses will close, infant mortality will soar. I had times after welfare reform passed when I expected that every time I stepped outside my door, I was going to have to step over bodies in the street. But of course, none of this happened. Welfare reform passed. The rolls are down, and so is poverty, so is child poverty, so is black child poverty. None of these disasters came to pass. On the other hand, neither did some of the wildest claims by proponents of welfare reform. At the time, many of them painted a picture of a golden age in which if we passed welfare reform, all these teen mothers were going to go out and suddenly become self-sufficient, that they were going to get jobs and they were going to start supporting their families, and the age of welfare dependency would be over. The reality is that many continue on welfare. Even of those who leave welfare continue on what Doug Besseroff from the American Enterprise Institute dubbed welfare light, 
uh, where they continue to receive food stamps and Medicaid and housing benefits and other forms of government assistance. They are not independent. And, of course, for the last 10 years, Congress, having successfully passed welfare reform, has spent its time patting itself on the back for the great courage it had in passing this reform and has done absolutely nothing to build on the reforms. So the question is that we ask ourselves today as we look back is, what has welfare reform accomplished over the last 10 years in realistic terms? And what should we be doing now as we look to the future? We're very happy today to have brought together two of the folks who I think if welfare can have sort of a, uh, a father and a grandfather without going into generational ages issues here, uh, these are the folks who are really responsible for welfare reform. Charles Murray, of course, uh, with his famous losing ground, did more to set the stage for welfare reform than I think any other individual. If ideas have consequences, uh, certainly Charles's ideas have had enormous consequences. Uh, few books uh, in our modern time, I think, have had as much influence over public policy as losing ground. And certainly he is the person who set the stage for all that was to come. And if any single public policy expert in Washington had a hand in writing welfare reform at the time, it would be Robert Rector, who, uh, who had a great deal of influence in what the bill actually contains and I think was as influential as anybody in putting this all together. So we're very delighted to have Charles and, and Robert with us today. Uh, I'm not going to give special intro uh, individual introductions from the time comes. We'll just give it right here. But Charles is the Brady Fellow at the uh, American Enterprise Institute. Uh, he has a brand new book come out, which I promised uh, I would plug, uh, In Our Hands, A Plan to Replace Welfare, uh, which I hope he will, he will mention. And Robert Rector is a research, uh, senior research fellow at the Heritage Institute and uh, handles welfare for them and has uh, since before I was in Washington. So we're delighted to have both of them with us today. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to, to Charles first and then Robert, and then I'll have a few, uh, few things and a few questions for both of them. So thank you both for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Um, I was saying to Robert before we came out here that we're going to cover the range of opinions in welfare reform from A to B. Uh, we do not have up here on the stage any of those who, uh, who are going to be harshly critical of it. And I hope uh, and trust that uh, some of you during the questioning period will indeed raise some of these issues that, that, uh, and points of view that, that Robert and I uh, are not raising. I'm going to be a little schizophrenic in my remarks. Uh, I'm going to begin with talking about the effects of uh, welfare reform and being pretty positive about it. And then I'm going to suddenly flip uh, over in the middle of the presentation and uh, tell you some reasons why I think that in many ways uh, the, the core problems that concern me uh, about the nature of uh, disadvantage and poverty and so forth in this country remain unaddressed. But let's start out with the good stuff. Uh, the, the thing about the Welfare Reform Act of 1996 that sets it apart from virtually any other social policy reform in the last half century is that it passes the trend line test. The trend line test is one that I set out in a book uh, called What It Means to Be a Libertarian that I wrote about... Uh, 10 years ago, actually, 1996. And it says, look, if you're going to pass Medicaid for, and you're going to be giving medical care to poor children that's supposedly better than they've gotten before, you ought to be able to see a difference in the trend line. 
on something like uh, infant mortality or other measures of child's health. If you are going to uh, uh, have a food stamp program and spend billions of dollars on that, you ought to be uh, able to see a change in the trend line over time in things like child's nutrition. And if you can't see that, you've got a problem. The example I use to illustrate the trend line test and what it means to be a libertarian is the is the uh, plot you see on the screen where you have empty years, 19 blank and 19 blank, and you have as your uh, line the deaths per 100 million vehicle miles, and the policy intervention in effect here is the imposition of the uh, 55 mile per hour speed limit, which we were saddled with for 20 odd years uh, after it was passed in 1974 on the grounds that it was saving thousands of lives per year. And how could anyone oppose that? And so I said, okay, take a look at this line. You tell me, where is 1974? Because we sure had a lot of big reductions in deaths, didn't we? Well, here's the answer. <laughs> not only does it not come just before a rapid reduction in, in deaths, it comes way after the big reduction. Not only that, it, it, it presages a period of flat uh, outcomes in terms of deaths per 100 million miles. So the one thing that's different about the Welfare Reform Act, as you look at a graph which has 19 blank to 19 blank, is that a person can look at that graph and quickly come up with a couple of hypotheses. The first is, if you look over at the left-hand side of the graph, Something happened there. Look at that line suddenly sweep straight up. And then something really did happen toward the right-hand side of the graph. And when you fill in the lines, here's what. Back in 1965 to 1970, you first had an increase in the real value of welfare benefits of all kinds of about 50% real increase over just five years. Then you had a variety of rules and regulations, all of which changed in, in one direction and one direction only. It made it more attractive to get on welfare, easier to stay on welfare, harder to enforce the rules, etc., etc. And lo and behold, welfare rules uh, just went through the roof. And over there at the right-hand side is, guess what, the Welfare Reform Act of 1996. That is what you call an intervention effect, uh, unlike any other that I can think of anywhere. Now, one of the questions I want to deal with is uh, a lot of the sociological and econometric analysis of why that, that, uh, that line plunged so steeply after 1996 has uh, averred that, in fact, it was really the economy, mostly. Uh, Doug Besheroff, uh, my colleague at AEI, who wrote the, the article called uh, Welfare Light that uh, Mike alluded to, uh, summarizes that literature and summarizes it approvingly as saying that, well, the welfare reform did have an important effect, maybe accounting for uh, 25 to 35 percent of the reduction. Uh, but actually, the, the buoyant economy accounted for 35 to 45 percent, and the expansion of the EITC accounted for 10 to 20 percent. Well, with all due respect to Doug and the articles he is citing, I don't think that passes the laugh test. Uh, let me uh, focus, since I have limited time, on the question of the economy. The explanation is that the Clinton economy did it, uh, or at least did 35 to 45 percent. I have shown here not only the trend line in welfare caseloads, but also the unemployment rate. 
uh, you could get similar kinds of results if you looked at a trend line of GDP, growth, et cetera, et cetera. But the unemployment rate is a good way to look at it because that most directly impinges uh, the availability of jobs for, for low-skill, low-income people. And if you look at the dark blue section of the unemployment uh, line, you will see, indeed, there was a huge drop in unemployment on Clinton's watch corresponding to that very steep drop in the welfare rules. That's great. The problem is the Reagan economy didn't do it. There is a drop just as steep, just as long, maybe even steeper and longer, and look at what happens to the red line showing the welfare rules, just really doesn't move around at all. And uh, even though uh, Jimmy Carter can't claim anything like the economic growth that Reagan had, he did have a big drop in unemployment back in the first years of his term. Well, that didn't do anything to the welfare rules either. Actually, that whole line here, that whole segment is fascinating because you had steep increases in unemployment. That didn't do anything either. And then, of course, you get back to LBJ's economy, which not only did not produce this wonderful result that Clinton's economy did, it produced exactly the opposite. You had another steep multi-year drop in unemployment, which corresponded with a rising, non-linear rising of the welfare rolls. Uh, it simply is not possible to link unemployment rates with welfare rolls over a longer period of time than 1996 to 2005. So I think that the, the Welfare Reform Act itself can claim a whole lot more than 25 to 35 percent of the credit, but we go back to an interesting point about that little line under the guess what. That's pointing to 1996, and there was already the start of a drop before that. Now, you could say that might have been temporary without the act, but there is another aspect of the reduction in the welfare rules that I find very interesting, and that is they have been quite general across states, including states that have taken very different approaches to implementing the law, those that have been quite strict, those that have been not so strict, uh, those that have used some kinds of rules and those that have used other kinds of rules. There seems to have been a big drop everywhere, and added on to that is even though the act had a lot of potential sticks in it, as opposed to carrots, the sticks really haven't been very fiercely wielded. Uh, and so I would propose as, as, a, as a hypothesis, because I do not have a lot of data to bring to bear on this, that something very interesting happened with the Welfare Reform Act, where once again the government is in the position of being the tail thinking it's wagging the dog. For a long time, the American public had been upset about welfare, viscerally upset, and it was a very broad, widespread feeling. The elites, and this includes Republican elites as well as uh, Democratic elites, just as stubbornly persisted in the, the idea that you can't be too nasty to lone mums, as the British put it, to single women with children. Uh, you've got to take uh, account of the realities of the job market and the rest of it. And welfare reform was, was actively resisted by large groups of those people who considered themselves the most responsible uh, elements of the uh, political dialogue, whether they were of the uh, Republicans or Democrats. That changed in the 1990s. Changed in the uh, campaign of Bill Clinton, where he promised to end welfare as we know it, and found that was one of his most effective themes. And after that time, something happened which is very simple and may explain far more than any of us realize. Namely, 
it suddenly became okay to say to women on the welfare rolls, you got to get a job. You are expected to get a job. you got to go look for a job. This is not supposed to be permanent. This was a kind of thing that the welfare legislation mandated social workers to say to their caseloads, which was indeed a big change, and gave them some provisions for enforcing it, which was another big change. But looming behind that, I think, is a much broader change in the conventional wisdom, the conventional elite wisdom, which said it's okay to say to people, welfare is a bad thing, you've got to get off. And I think that change in rhetoric alone uh, accounts for an indeterminate but not insubstantial part of the reduction in the welfare rules. Well, there are lots and lots of other technical issues to uh, debate about uh, the effects of the welfare reform and what it did and did not accomplish, and I hope that Robert Rector will, will deal with some of those. But I want to turn to uh, the issue that's bothered me, and that's what about the underclass. Even in losing ground, my complaint was not that we had too many women on welfare. In losing ground, my complaint was that we had changed the rules of the game with the social reforms of the 1960s so that young people behaved in ways in the short term that made sense in terms of short-term adolescent expectations and rewards, but in the long term were disastrous. That led young women to get married, uh, get pregnant without getting married, that led young men to drop out of the labor force, uh, that led uh, people to commit crimes, and that these were the problem, not welfare cheats. As the years went on after Losing Ground was published, uh, this theme uh, was elaborated in a number of publications, and I increasingly used the word underclass, which I did not use in Losing Ground. Uh, underclass meaning uh, the description I put there, it's a quote actually from a monograph I wrote called The Underclass Revisited. I'm not talking about poor people, not even talking about disadvantaged people. I'm talking about people cut off from the mainstream of American society, uh, people who either no longer participate and are supported by society or people who actively prey on society. And the bad thing about this is not only what they do to the rest of us, but also it is a terrible way for a human being to live a life marked by social disorganization, a poverty of social networks and valued roles, and a Hobbesian kind of individualism in which trust and cooperation, those things which we libertarians are so fond of saying go with the right kind of individualism, but are hard to come by in the underclass, and isolation is common. I furthermore, over the years, and this goes back to 1989, well antedating uh, welfare reform, I specified three indicators for tracking the size of the underclass. One of them is criminality, because being a criminal is in some of the most basic ways uh, divorcing yourself from mainstream society and preying on it. The illegitimacy ratio, uh, that's what I called it then. I get more and more nervous about calling it that as the years goes on, and illegitimacy becomes more and more abhorrent to more and more people as a word. The illegitimacy ratio is the percentage of children born to unmarried women. The reason that's bad has nothing to do with Christian morality or, uh, or the fact that people should be virgins until they get married. It has everything to do with the fact that if you are a young male or a young girl growing up in a neighborhood where there are almost no adult males playing a responsible role as spouse and father, 
you end up with an unsocialized new generation in those neighborhoods. That is not a statement of morality. That is a statement that is about as empirically well-grounded as any social science statement can be, well-grounded not just by scholars of the right, but scholars of the left as well. And the third indicator is young male labor force dropouts. If there is one norm that has remained unchanged, it is that if you're a young, healthy male and you aren't in school and you uh, uh, hit as 17, 18 years old, you're supposed to get a job. That has been the expectation throughout American history, and not to go out and get a job, not even to be in the labor force. Not talking about unemployment here. We're talking about not being available for work is indicative of a very drastic way of divorcing yourself from mainstream American society. Well, those are the three indicators. Now let me add something else. We haven't talked about the underclass, except for a 15-minute interval after Katrina, uh, since uh, about 1992. Didn't talk about it during the election campaign of Bill Clinton in 1992, and lo and behold, the press stopped talking about it after Bill Clinton got elected. You couldn't hear enough of it during Ronald Reagan's uh, years in which uh, he was responsible for a huge and uh, growing underclass, but all at once the underclass disappeared throughout the 1990s, and by the way, it continued to disappear throughout George Bush's presidency again until Katrina. The topic disappeared, but it's not because the underclass shrank. Let's go through each of those indicators. Persons in prison per thousand population. Uh, a rough indicator of criminality. Uh, I put three colors in there. The, uh, the, the sort of bluish one is from uh, 1980 when Ronald Reagan was elected through uh, the first Bush administration. The light pink one is uh, 1993 uh, through uh, 1995, up till 1996, when Clinton was in office. And then 1996 and thereafter is the dark red. Well... It hasn't grown quite as fast, the prison population, after uh, 1993, but it just about as fast and grown quite substantially. If you don't like prisoners uh, as a measure, saying, well, we got tougher on prisons and that doesn't really mean an increase in criminality, you can turn to another indicator called persons under correctional supervision. Because while it is true that under different regimes you have different percentages of people sentenced to prison, if somebody is convicted of a crime... Uh, whether it's the 1970s, 1980s, or 1990s, something happens to them, whether it's probation or prison or a halfway house or whatever. They are under correctional supervision. So this is a better indicator of a change. The underclass has gotten bigger by this indicator throughout the 1990s and uh, continuing until today. Percentage of children born to unmarried women. There is some good news here. If, if you have, do have a flattening of the trend line, there's no question about that. But it's still going up, and it went up actually quite substantially in the first, uh, during the first Clinton term, not because of anything Clinton did. It was just continuing to go up. Maybe the flattening of the line has something to do with welfare reform and that. Uh, that would be nice to think, but here's the problem. It's continued to go up, and that is all births. Remember uh, Pat Moynihan when he wrote uh, back in, well, when I say remember, I'm assuming other people in this audience are my age. Uh, some of you in this audience may have heard that Pat Moynihan, back in the early 1960s, wrote a report called uh, The Breakdown of the Black Family. And um, he was looking at a black illegitimacy ratio at that time of about 20 to 23 percent of all births. As of right now, the uh, illegitimacy ratio for white 
non-Hispanics is about 25%, higher than the percentage that so troubled Moynihan about blacks in 1963-64. Uh, for blacks, it's been around 68, 69, 70% for many years now. Hispanics is continuing to go up. But that rise in the 1990s and the 2000s is driven primarily by non-Hispanic whites. We are now at over a third of all births. This is not something which is happening across social classes equally. It's not college graduate women who are going to law school and saying, I'm going to have a baby too because I can have it all and I don't need a husband. No. Their, their illegitimacy ratios, and I'm talking about people who go, uh, have college degrees, is at post-World War II levels. It is concentrated among the poorest communities, white and black and Hispanic alike, and it portends a social catastrophe. And finally, there's a percentage of young males out of the labor force. Black males ages 16 to 24 uh, uh, since, uh, uh, excuse me, black males ages 16 to 24, white males ages 16 to 24, percentage of those who are not looking for work. I'm sorry the numbers didn't get printed out right when they uh, got transmitted through cyberspace this afternoon. That's 16 to 24. Uh, throughout the uh, 90s and 2000s, the black ratio continued to go up. So you're now talking about roughly 30% of young black males, 16 to 24, who are out of the labor force, not even looking for work. But now take a look at the white and what's happened since 2000. If you, if you put this in proportional terms, so that you treat 1980 as the baseline, each representing one for black and whites, so then and you're looking at proportional increase, uh, the white increase since 2000 is really pretty staggering. Now, why do I go through these numbers um, that have um, so little to do with anything in the current political dialogue? Well, I will close with, with the, this brief observation. I think that the United States worries about the, the underclass to the extent it is getting in our face our face, meaning middle-class people who were very bothered by uh, the crime, and we solved that by putting a whole lot of people in prison, lowering the crime rate. We were bothered by things like the graffiti, but we learned how to clean up graffiti. We were bothered by the, the, the people begging in the streets. We managed to get them out of our hair in most cities except San Francisco. We managed to take the underclass and pretty effectively wall it off so that it does not affect our daily lives as it used to in the 1970s and 1980s. But it has not gone away. That is a problem on two dimensions. The first dimension is that it is a terrible way uh, to live a human life if you are a member of the underclass. This is not an alternative lifestyle which is just as good as being married and having children and, and holding down a job and the rest of it. It is, it is bereft of many of the deepest kinds of satisfaction that go into living a human life. And the second is, is worrisome for American society as a whole. Uh, one of the articles I wrote that um, almost nobody remembers anymore, but I myself uh, think it was a as prescient as anything I've ever written, it was called The Coming of Custodial Democracy, which I published in Commentary in 1988, in which I, I actually predicted a number of the phenomena that I've just discussed about how we were going to wall the underclass off. And the reason I called it custodial democracy 
is because I said, well, what we're going to try to do is we are going to try to maintain a free society under democratic institutions with a large segment of that society who we have no hope can be participants in it. Can you do that? And one of the alternative scenarios down the road is that the United States begins to look more and more like Latin America with the gated and uh, barbed wired, uh, tastefully barbed wired uh, communities uh, on the hill and the underclass down below uh, kept satisfied by enough food and enough uh, circuses uh, but with no prospects for getting out. Well, I'm not saying we're there yet. I am saying that we have taken a very large problem that has continued to grow. We have slid it under the rug. So as we celebrate 10 years of welfare reform, let us finally start to attend to these issues that we have left unattended. Thank you. said that this was going to be present versions A and B. It's maybe closer to A, A prime. <laughs> um, you know, last year, uh, last year the United States uh, spent $587 billion on means-tested aid, and I always say it's a pretty darn good thing we ended welfare or we'd be spending some real money here. Um, as the summer came toward this 10th year anniversary, uh, those that have seen me at Heritage have seen that I have a considerable amount of ambivalence about this reform. And in order for me to get enthused about it, I actually have to go up and testify in front of Congressman McDermott or someone of that ilk and, and have them attack the reform in the most idiotic and outrageous <laughs> way possible. And, and then I can actually start to get excited about this thing again. I think the first thing we ought to say is at Cato, you know, if we're talking about the success or failure of welfare reform, we first ought to talk about what, what are our goals. Um, and I guess before a libertarian audience, I would say that one of the goals of welfare reform would be that you would reduce the cost and size of the welfare state. Uh, thereby reducing the amount of money that you involuntarily extract from the taxpayers to pay for a function which may have no constitutional basis whatsoever. Uh, and in that sense, I would say that this reform was modestly successful in terms of changing uh, fundamental trends, but certainly not any great uh, three-ring circus to write home about. I would say from a, my conservative perspective that I'm more concerned about the well-being of the recipients themselves and about future generations. And in that sense, I think the reform uh, was 
possibly a positive harbinger showing us things that we could do in the future, in particular showing us that we can, in fact, change certain trend lines by altering government policy, that it's not necessarily true that every government program and every reform of government must always be unsuccessful. Now, so what was welfare reform? What I would say is that welfare reform, above all else, represented a change in the philosophy of government welfare, that from the time of of Franklin Roosevelt and certainly from the time of Lyndon Johnson, the welfare system in the U.S., which which comprises over 70 different programs, uh, was a system of permissive entitlement. It was a system of one-way handouts in which an individual who was in need of aid would receive aid in the form of cash or medical services or housing or food or something like that as a one-way handout. And that the central idea of welfare reform was that that was a bad idea, harmful to the taxpayer, harmful to society, and harmful to the recipient as well, and that we would try to replace that with a system of reciprocal obligation in which we would not terminate aid, but which we would say, we, we will give you assistance, but we expect certain things back from you in return from that, for that assistance. In particular, we're going to expect that if you want to get uh, cash under what used to be aid to families with dependent children, that we're going to expect you to undertake a supervised job search or to do some training, to do some community service work or something like that, or take a job, uh, something like that as a condition for getting aid. Now, once you do that, you get some fairly remarkable results, uh, one of which is uh, sitting in welfare intake centers in Long Island. Uh, I have seen on more than one occasion, once that type of demand is put as a precondition for getting the aid, the applicant for the aid say things like, well, if I have to do all that, I might as well just go out and take a job. And, and lo and behold, they do that. It's quite remarkable. As we go through the data, you can clearly see that effect. So one of the things that you get from this type of reciprocity or conditioned aid is you get a kind of gatekeeping device because I would say that when you look at the overall pre-reform welfare population, uh, there's a group there that is truly in need of assistance because they cannot support their family. But there's an even larger group that is willing to take a free handout if you're bothering to shove it in their face. And one of the things that you get when you say, we will give you assistance, but we expect you to do something substantial in return for that, is you you weed out the difference between those two groups. Uh, You're going to get the people that are looking for the the handout uh, coming into the office with far less frequency. And that enables you, hopefully, to focus your, assist, your, your, fo- your energies more on those that are truly in, in need of aid. It also means that there's less abuse of the taxpayer. There we go. So in welfare reform, we basically had two goals in 1996. Uh, The first was to establish work requirements, not just in aid to families with dependent children. We don't generally remember it, but we also had work requirements in food stamps, 
at least tentatively proposed, and even in public housing to a degree. And secondly, and I always said most importantly, was to deal with the problem of -of out-of-wedlock childbearing and increase uh, the number of children that were born inside marriage. Uh, And those were very important. And I think that we made uh, some uh, modest progress on both of those fronts, but certainly not everything that we we could have done. Now, this is going to be a very familiar chart. You already saw one version of this. The red line here, this is the... uh, AFDC and then later on temporary assistance to needy families caseload going back to the time of the Korean War and uh, Charles Murray has already essentially presented this very sim- this is essentially the same data he was presenting and what we can see is that there for a, a 55 year period uh, that red line uh, did two things it either remained flat or it went up the black bars on the, the line are periods of economic recession, and the white bars are periods of economic boom. So we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, t- ten periods of boom uh, there on that chart. And we could ask you notice how many times that red line comes plummeting downward during economic booms, right? It just over and over again. Well, in, in fact, Although we've got 10 periods of economic boom there, this caseload went down in how many periods? One, okay? It goes down right here. And what happens right here? Well, we have welfare reform. Now, Charles pointed out that the caseload actually starts coming down a little bit before the act is, is passed. And why is that? Well, I would say that what drove that caseload down are actually two effects. One I call the programmatic effect, which is uh, we sort of have some waivers in this period. Wisconsin's doing some stuff. And by here, we're starting to really get calling welfare recipients into the office and making them do things, thereby reducing the economic utility of being on welfare. Caseload is going down. But also in this whole period, there's this large symbolic effect. I would say that welfare reform actually started the first time Bill Clinton said, He planned to end welfare as we know it. That message got out there. It hit the street. And he's talking about two years and you're off. Now, he absolutely didn't mean that or anything even remotely like that. But it sounded like he meant it. Okay? And if you were a welfare recipient on the street, you would say, whoa. And then along come these Republican guys. And Newt Gingrich is talking about putting kids in orphanages and all kinds. It sounds pretty scary out here. Okay, And uh, what I think you clearly see here is all across the country a, a behavioral response to the value messages of welfare, the very clear messages, although, you know, wealth, potential welfare recipients aren't going to sit down and try to figure out what the TANF participation rate is or what the sanction system is in, this, in Kentucky as opposed to New York and so forth. But they did hear the message that welfare would be time-limited, that there was an expectation that you were supposed to work rather than spend a lifetime on welfare, and you seem to see an across-the-board behavioral response. One anecdote to that was that pretty early on in this system, we got feedback, this was probably 97 or something, maybe the spring of 97, about four months after the act has passed, and we, we got feedback back from one of the plain state, I think it was Nebraska, and the welfare manager, the welfare director was out there saying, our caseload is going through the floor out here, and we haven't done anything. 
We've implemented no program whatsoever yet, you know. What? But he said, you know why this is happening? It's because all these left-wing activist groups are out in the community, and they're telling people, those horrible Republicans have passed welfare reform. They're going to throw you off in two years. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be awful. And all the welfare recipients said, holy Toledo, I better get my act together. I better get off of this thing because it is time limited. I can't waste all this time. They're not going to support me forever. And so they actually began to, the caseload begins to go down very rapidly in response to those symbolic messages. In that case, the symbolic message uh, was unrelated to any actual policy that was going on. And to a considerable degree, a lot of this caseload uh, decline can in fact be attributed more to these types of symbolic messages that are taken very seriously than uh, to any actual programs. Although I will say that also if you look at this line going down, that you do find consistently throughout the period that those states that are most rigorous in insisting that the individual must engage in constructive behavior, must be in the office, must be supervised, uh, they will have much more rapid caseload decline than states that are more lenient about that and are leaving a larger part of the caseload untouched. All in all, what you have there is what I would call a great philosophical victory. If you were to go back probably all the way from about right here, 1965, right up to the present time, in, in homes all across America, we would have what I call the, the Thanksgiving dinner debate, in which so we're talking about welfare, and Uncle Joe says, you know, you know, if you just made these welfare recipients go out and take a job, they wouldn't be sitting there collecting all that welfare. And now, if, if Charles and I have been in this, this field for a very long time. If you polled all the liberal welfare experts, they would all say, oh, how ridiculous. What an idiotic, what a primitive notion when we know that, in fact, there are no jobs to be had, that there are barriers, that you can't, that this caseload is utterly inflexible. And at the time we passed this, okay. at the time we passed this in 93, the prevailing wisdom was that you could reduce the AFDC caseload by perhaps 5% over three years. Okay. Actually, while we were doing this, Wisconsin was dropping it at 5% a month, but it violated all of, of the prevailing liberal wisdom about what you could do. So it, what we have here is a very strong philosophical victory for the idea that incentives matter, that if you change the incentives of the systems, in this case uh, by reducing uh, the utility of being on welfare, you get a very large behavioral response. Now, as that caseload goes down, starting in 93, we had 5 million families on AFDC. By, by 2000, or by the present time, it's down to 2 million families. All those families that were on welfare were, by definition, automatically poor. They had incomes below the poverty level because welfare never pays enough to bring an income above the federal poverty level in any state, uh, at least not cash income. And so as those families go off welfare, or more importantly, they didn't enter it at all, which is a, a huge effect. They never came into the office in the first place. Employment of single mothers surges up in an unprecedented way. And as a, a, a large number of mothers are off welfare and they're working, you get a poverty effect. 
Now what we have here is the poverty status of black children uh, going back to 1970. And what you can see there is that for 25 years prior to welfare reform, uh, the, effectively the black child poverty rate is, is flat. It hovers between 41% in the recession. It kicks up a bit, but it never really gets below uh, mid-40s. Uh, and, and at the end, by 1995, it's actually slightly higher than it was uh, in, at, in 1970. So 25 years under the conventional war on poverty and black child poverty, what I think you could say is the primary liberal goal for these policies, is no net change, no gain whatsoever. Along come the mean-spirited Republicans who are going to throw children out into the street, who are going to have kids starving in the snow, and whoopee, what happens here? This thing goes down and down and down. And in the late 1990s, every single year, black child poverty was hitting a new record low. Surprisingly, for reasons I can't imagine, this was never covered in the New York Times or the Washington Post. Okay, But by 2000, we're down to 30, uh, a black child poverty rate of 30%. If this had been the result of a liberal initiative, oh my goodness, I mean, I think we're probably talking Nobel Prize here to, to <laughs> some members of Congress. Uh, it, but uh, this, in fact, happened because we got tough uh, and we, 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 we were mean-spirited, not really mean-spirited, I think, but that uh, it was the result of a conservative policy, so we haven't heard very much about that. We've clearly shifted sort of the baseline of what poverty is. If you looked at poverty among single mothers, the chart looks very similar to that. Now, Charles talked about the this is the illegitimacy ratio, and both uh, Charles Murray and I believe that this is actually a much more significant variable and one which we struggled very hard to get uh, into welfare reform without a considerable amount of success. This goes back to 1940. The yellow line is the percentage of all births <coughs> that are outside marriage. At the beginning of the war on poverty, uh, it's around 7%. Uh, by the mid-1990s, it's risen to about 34%. Uh, one of the things I worked on very strongly in welfare reform was simply to create policies that would force a discussion of this issue because this is the underlying cause in my mind of welfare dependence of child poverty and of the underclass. It was very very difficult to get members of Congress to talk about this. We owe a great deal of gratitude to Senator Locke Faircloth and uh, then Congressman Jim Tallon who worked for years to try to even put this in public discussion with a considerable amount of, public, of the Republican Party saying, ooh, this, this topic is just undiscussable, please, please go away. Now what I would say here is I, I think there has in fact been a substantial shift here. This is the, uh, the same illegitimacy ratio starting in 65. Senator Moynihan often described that blue line as, as something that looked like it was drawn with a ruler going straight up at about one percentage point a year. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, but in around the time that this reform begins symbolically, where we talk about ending welfare as a lifetime entitlement, the line does kink over. And, and if, we, if we had gone forward at the prior uh, rate of increase, uh, that which is marked in that red dotted line, we would have uh, over 40% of all children being born out of wedlock today. 
Uh, it's, it's only 34 percent, so isn't that a magnificent triumph? Uh, but it is, uh, I think, uh, about one and a half uh, million fewer children being born out of wedlock, and I think that's that that's a notable thing. And I do I think this is clearly not the result of any specific policy, because states, although they were supposed to address this issue, uh, have steered away from it. Uh, it's because it's politically incorrect. But I think the general symbolic effect of saying that welfare is time-limited, you're expected to support yourself, and so forth, did cause an alteration in this behavior as well. So our challenge to the future is to find a way to actually begin to move that blue line downward. So I'll leave that with that. So pros and cons. Uh, what are the pros of welfare reform? Well, if you were a, a, a liberal favoring a massive expansion of the conventional welfare system, you've been put on the intellectual defensive by welfare reform. We haven't seen much expansion. It's not that spending hasn't grown up, but in terms of new programs, new initiatives for the poor, they're very much on the initiative because the welfare reform is focused on the behavioral roots of, of poverty and dependence rather than simply throwing additional money at the problem. Second, as I said, we've demonstrated the effectiveness of, of core conservative ideas concerning reciprocal obligation. We have had, thirdly, these de- rather dramatic declines in dependence in one program, and I emphasize one program, uh, and we've had these declines in poverty. And fourthly, we've, we had, did have, around the time of welfare reform, a significant increase in the debate about out-of-wedlock childbearing, uh, we've got that in, reduction in out-of-wedlock childbearing is a principal goal of the act that wasn't carried out. But in the last six months, we've, we've passed uh, new provisions under the act that I think will begin to produce uh, fairly interesting pioneer programs to deal with that, that key issue in the future. Now, what are the limits or the cons of welfare reform? Well, first of all, and obviously, we've got over 50 means-tested federal welfare programs. We had aid to families with dependent children. It's the most well-known, but we've also got food stamps, public housing, Medicaid, earned income tax credit, and on and on and on. We reformed only one of those programs. Okay? The others are sitting there completely untouched in, in their pristine war on poverty forms without any alteration. Second, uh, uh, related to that, if you look at parallel programs such as food stamps and public housing uh, that actually serve exactly the same clientele, as, as uh, aid, aid to families with dependent children, no work requirements in those programs. So the reform is much, much more limited than anyone actually imagines. We did not reform the welfare state. We simply reformed the one most visible uh, pro- uh, program there. Third, uh, this has been alluded to by Mike, there's a great deal of energy about reforming welfare in the 90s. All of that's passed now. People are bored with it. They think we ended welfare. So we've lost sort of the momentum to do future reforms. A fifth, uh, fourth, as I did mention, the states did not act on the goal of reducing illegitimacy as they were supposed to under the act. Fifth, the issue of values we need to get into. Uh, when in the summer of '94, when the Contract for America was passed, the Republicans were about to assume the majority in the House of Representatives. I can remember very clearly meeting Newt Gingrich, just running into him out in front of the, the Capitol talking about the welfare provisions in the contract for America, and I said, Newt, the one thing that you didn't get in there that's the most important of all, work for welfare recipients, that's okay. That's all right, but it's not going to cure the underclass. What you really needed to get in there 
was a major school choice provision that would allow underclass children to go to re- to choose or their parents to choose to put their kids in religious schools if that's what the cho- parents wanted. And and I said that will do far more for the underclass than all this workfare stuff will. Uh, and he said to me at the time, well, I couldn't get that through the party. We'll we'll, we'll have to do that in the future. So Ten years later, I think we're still waiting on those issues. We're still waiting for the sort of massive values transformation that's going to be necessary to deal with the underclass issues. So what, what all in all was wrong? Why haven't we gone forward since this act seems to have done so well? I would say it's really very simple, that the Congress that passed the 1996 Welfare Reform Act was, in fact, the most conservative Congress we've seen in I don't know when, okay? It was very conservative. And this act was as far as they would be willing to go in terms of reducing, uh, of changing the welfare state. Every year since then, we've tried to go farther. But, in fact, since that period of time, the Congress has, in fact, moved incrementally to the left, uh, with, with less and less uh, n- members in, in Congress that are willing to support this kind of uh, tough, uh, tough-minded change that I think is really necessary to help the poor. And so I think that we probably won't make uh, substantial additional progress in dealing with any of these issues until there's another surge that produces a Congress that is at, at least as vigorous and is interested in these issues as, as the one that, that came into power in 1994. And I do look forward and hope for uh, such an eventuality sometime uh, in, in the near future, but perhaps not too near. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. I uh, appreciate it. And uh, we will get to the audience uh, in just a minute. But uh, I'm going to do what I can here to stir things up a little bit and see if we can set it from A A to A prime. Maybe I could move it a little bit uh, to at least to C here. Because actually, despite all the agreement here today, I I do see that you two represent kind of different uh, viewpoints to how to proceed in in terms of welfare reform. If I can, Charles, your new book uh, I think advocates uh, something essentially that's sort of a, a guaranteed income, sort of very much like Milton Friedman's negative income tax, Sort of, a, a, we provide people with a minimum level of income, and we don't put uh, any behavioral restrictions on, on them. They're, they're simply uh, they're born in the United States, they live in the United States, therefore they get a, a, a certain level of income. And, and Robert, I, I know you've been sort of identified with the with the, the paternalistic school of welfare reform—the idea that we need to set a whole bunch of behavioral hoops for for people that we should give them money, but they should uh, marry and work and, and and do a number of things to reform. So let me ask you each a, a question on this. Uh, Charles, first of all, doesn't establishing the idea that people are guaranteed a certain income by right sort of put us in a situation where we're just going to be in a bidding war for how much more money we can give these people, and we're going to end up with something that looks very much like a European welfare state uh, and, and exacerbate all the, all the, all the problems uh, that, that we really have? And, and then, Robert, I've got a corollary question on that to you in a minute. Well, actually, on the question of, uh, of the approach I, I, I put forward and in our hands, Robert and I not only uh, do not uh, limit ourselves to A to B, uh, we, we're tempted to try to throttle each other on the floor. Uh, we've, we've gotten into some real set-tos on this already. Um, 
let me fra- let me reframe your question in terms of what do we do next? Because both Robert and I are saying, gee, we've got a big agenda that we haven't dealt with. And, and here's where I think we do, do have a philosophical difference. Uh, the subtitle of the book, In Our Hands, is not a plan to replace welfare. It is a plan to replace the welfare state. And the basic proposition is, look, all the good things that we want in terms of communities and, and uh, uh, civil, civil society and the rest – uh, are never going to be revitalized or never going to be triggered as long as we have the welfare state we have now. What we have to do is simply stop straining money through the government bureaucracies and have it dribble out the other end, whatever's left to people. What you do is to say when you turn 21 in the United States, you have deposited monthly into an account uh, one-twelfth of $10,000 a year. Now, in fact, it's more complicated than that, but not a whole lot more complicated than that. And out of that, you have to provide for your own retirement, your own health care, uh, your own rainy days, and all the rest of it. But you are free to use it as, as you wish. That's a really short statement of, of a broad approach. Uh, by the way, you don't lose the money when you start to work either. If you start to work, you keep all that uh, the money you're getting from the grant up to a very high cutoff level. The, the, this is, I would set on the table as a libertarian, um, a, a libertarian comp- grand compromise with the left. It says, we will give you big government in terms of spending, because this is going to cost um, as much as it's going to cost a whole lot of money. It'll cost less than the current system will cost in several years, but never mind, it's a whole lot of money. You give us small government in the ability of government to meddle in people's lives. Give us small government in the sense that resources, once again, are not going to bureaucracies, but uh, they are going to institutions that have to elicit the voluntary cooperation of the people who they are trying to help in order to do anything. The Salvation Army does not have it within its capacity to drag people off the streets and make them come to the Salvation Army. They have to provide services in ways that both attract donors and also attract clients. And that's true of every other voluntary organization. So what I'm looking toward here is a philosophy of dealing with the underclass, which I set up in the last part of my remarks, which says you will not deal with the underclass until you get government out of the way and you restore a a great deal more latitude in people to make their own decisions about their own lives, including bad decisions about their own lives. And that's I will I will stop there as a broad setup of how I think you can deal with the problem of the underclass and let Robert go on because he has a very different very different approach. Well, then let me ask you a question, Robert. Uh, if, if Charles is lots of money and very little meddling, yours is less money and, and a lot more meddling. Uh, in, in my book, uh, The Poverty of Welfare, Helping Others in a Civil Society, I talk about shifting the responsibility for social welfare from the government to the civil society, to private charity, and so on. You've been, have been quoted as saying that food stamps are better than food banks because the government is able to d- direct people that they have to behave in ways that private food banks haven't been doing. What is the role for government versus the role for civil society uh, under your program. Do you believe that government should basically run poor people's lives, or are you saying that, uh, that there's some other way that government fits into this? I think that if the government is going to extract money involuntarily from taxpayers to 
provide services to people in need, that it, there's a moral requirement that you have to do that in such a way that you you're you are reduce you're 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 reducing the need the self-destructive behaviors that generate that need in the first place. I think to give it to take money away from the taxpayer and just give it out without any uh, attempt to to make sure that 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 the behaviors that create the need in the first place are not modified is very unfair. What I would say is I don't think the issue is government versus not government. Uh, as I've written, no one has ever read this, but I've written this, you know, that the real problem is not government versus not government. The real problem is that if you go to most private charity today, most private charity works on the, the same uh, philosophy of permissive entitlement that the, that the War on Poverty Act worked on. And that's why if you go to a private sector food bank, for example, well, do they, do they have conditional aid? Do they have reciprocal obligation? Do they have limitations on who gets the aid? No. They're far more permissive than, than the food stamp system. The food stamp system is completely corrupt. Uh, and why is that? It, it's, it's because they both are operating on, uh, on the idea that it, of unconditional assistance, if you're in need, we need to give you something, which I think is actively harmful to poor people. I, I also simply go back. I, I'm, I am a, a, an ironclad, rigid incrementalist, uh, I, I, and uh, all I will try to do is deal with the system that actually exists. Now, the system that actually exists is that we're spending close to $600 billion a year in government means-tested aid. The private sector, private charity, is spending about $10 billion a year assisting the poor. Okay, so we're going to have the private sector take this over. No way. You know, it's not happening. So what, or it's not happening in our lifetimes. Uh, and so what I'm concerned about is making sure that that $600 billion is given out in such a way that it, it promotes constructive behaviors that move towards self-sufficiency and human well-being rather than undermining and, and promoting self-destructive behaviors. Uh, that may be too limited, but it's been a challenge that has been <laughs> – I haven't gotten too far in terms of reforming it. So I think that's the direction where we need to work. I think – and you, you did say I wanted to require welfare recipients to get married. No, I, all I would like to do is provide women that are likely to have children out of wedlock if they're interested in information that might help them make better life choices. I think that would be in their best interest. I think it would also be in the best interest of the taxpayer in the long term. And that's exactly the sort of thing I want to continue to pursue. Charles, one, one more quick question each of you then as a follow-up on this. Charles, you used to talk about the idea that you'd hope the state might do something like set a time limit, say nine months and one day from, from right now, and suggest that no one else would be admitted to welfare, or uh, of somehow disqualifying uh, out-of-wedlock birth as a, as a way of achieving welfare benefits. Does your new proposal mean you're abandoning that approach? Uh, what you're referring to is that when, when people uh, used to say that, well, you can't, expect, uh, uh, you can't expect young adolescents to have uh, decisions about whether to have sex, sex on the basis of the uh, future income stream from welfare, and I would say, yeah, but if you said that nine months and one day from tomorrow, a number which I picked for symbolic purposes, uh, we were announced there was going to be no assistance of any kind whatsoever for a woman who had a baby, uh, there would be a whole bunch of dinner table conversations going on tonight that were not going on last night. 
that you're not talking about a situation in which people sit in isolation making decisions de novo. You're talking about an interaction of people with their parents, with neighbors, with relatives, and the rest of it. Uh, and that's the only way you get change. And in the book, um, which actually I do encourage you to read, uh, it's a short book, and, and I actually have thought about the question of, gee, will this produce negative incentives, and do try to talk my way through uh, the reasons for thinking they won't. And in the case of out-of-wedlock births, let me pose a huge pair of uh, set of incentives that have changed. If you have the $10,000 uh, going into your account at age 21, first think of the young woman. Now, she will have older sisters and older friends as she is 20 years old, and she will look at her 21 and 22-year-old older sisters and older friends, and she will see two kinds of girls, young women. She will see some who are spending that money to supplement their job income, uh, using it to rent a flat, using it to uh, buy clothes, using it for education or whatever. She will see others of her friends spending that money on diapers. It's a case of all at once imposing a cost on her of having a baby. Right now, the only way you get assistance is if you have the baby. Under the plan I'm talking about, all at once, you will have to pay for the baby. And if you don't have the baby, you have other things that are more fun to spend your money on. Now, let's also take a look at the young man and his changed incentives. We have all sorts of programs now which try desperately to impose child support requirements on unmarried fathers. They don't work very well. And the reason they don't work very well is because very few of those young men uh, have visible incomes, and they can easily avoid the requirements, etc., etc. Under the plan I'm talking about, all at once, this young man, whose paternity can be easily proved with a DNA test, has a known income stream coming into a known bank account that can be tapped by any judge with, who has the proper legislation to work with. All at once, siring a child without marrying the woman bears a steep financial penalty. It transforms the incentives. And it also transforms the incentives that operate on parents and on neighbors and on everyone else. Uh, so, no, I haven't given up. I'm trying to think through ways in which I, as a libertarian, can have a world in which there's going to continue to be a huge amount of money spent on transfer payments, because that's the way it's going to be, and be a better world. Uh, I will just simply conclude by saying that, as Bob said, that he is a rock-hard, iron-ribbed uh, incrementalist. I am a rock-hard, uh, iron-ribbed visionary uh, who has nothing to say practical about any politics uh, in our immediate future. On the other hand, I was that way with losing ground, too, okay? And it worked okay that time. So give me another 10 or 15 years, and uh, maybe, maybe the dialogue will change. All right, last question, then we'll go to the audience. Robert, one of the sort of bedrock principles that, that conservatives espoused as far back as I can remember, Barry Goldwater and all this, was the idea of federalism. The idea that the states as laboratories of democracy should be given freedom to, to experiment. Welfare reform has been very prescriptive, and the new renewal of welfare reforms have been even more prescriptive, and, and you've advocated a lot of this. The states must meet specific requirements. They must behave in specific ways, meet certain goals and all that. Is, is that sort of that, that anti-federalist, big government, conservative type of thing, is that, is that the wave of welfare reform, or is that a change? I think it really depends on what you mean by federalism, and and what when we talk about giving states flexibility with 
with federal money, I regard that as a sham federalism, okay? But one of the things that we all believe as libertarians or conservatives is that uh, people spend their own money more wisely than they spend other people's money, right? Okay? And so what would be the thing that would be the most irresponsible spending uh, system? It would be one group of politicians spending money raised by another group of politicians. Okay, now we we're not even going to know what was spent. Okay, and uh, <clears throat> so I think that it is very irresponsible to collect uh, money up at the federal government le- level and then just dump it down on the states and say you guys do whatever you want. In fact, the state governments as legislatures have nothing to do with that. That really creates bureaucratic autonomy in one of the most lethargic set of institutions in the world, which are the state welfare bureaucracies that spend all this federal money. Uh, I I can remember very clearly uh, challenging Governor Engler at the time on this, and I said, Governor, if you want to be for federalism, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll abolish all these federal welfare programs, and we'll cut taxes, and you can raise all the money and spend this all at the state level. And he said, no thank you, okay? No thank you indeed. And I would, I would commend, when we think about this sham federalism, uh, to remember that what was one of the first programs that Ronald Reagan abolished in 1981? It was Nixon's revenue sharing. There's nothing federalistic about this at all. All you're doing is corrupting the state governments. So as long as we're going to extract money from the taxpayer at the federal government level, I'm going to be darn sure that that money is is spent in as constructive and as positive and as non-wasteful a way as it possibly can. I am not going to extract money at the federal government level and then hand it off to some anonymous bureaucracy and say, have a good time. I think that's a terrible idea, and I think the reform was successful precisely because we did not do that. All right, now it's your turn out there. Uh, got one right in the back. Please wait till the microphone comes along and uh, before you and identify yourself if you can, and if we can keep it to questions and not speeches, that's always best. Um, I heard John McWhorter at AEI talking about, he said one of the problems that black young men are saying is exactly this problem of child support. And I was wondering, is there that they're saying they now want to get into the workforce, but they know they have to pay child support? Something we should have expected. I I, I couldn't hear um, the. John McWhorter said that that at AEI said that he had talked to black young men who were, and they said the problem they had was they would have to now have to pay child support. Oh, that they do now have to pay and, child support. And, and, and is there... Is that keeping them out of the labor force, the, the no, fear of having to pay it, child support? Is this just an excuse, or is this... Sometimes it's best to say, I don't know, uh, if one doesn't know. And uh, I don't know. Uh, I, they, they try to enforce it. There are There is evasion of... Um, of, of child support enforcement, sometimes by disappearing into the gray economy, whether we're talking about large enough numbers to be, you know, uh, affect the labor force participation rate, I just don't know. I think there clearly is some working off the books to avoid those obligations. There's a lot of working off the books uh, to the tune of, of tens and tens of billions of dollars in our economy. Um, I think 
on the other hand, there's some positive effects to child support. It requires a somewhat re- more responsible behavior. But the real thing is that's not the point we want to intervene. By the time you've had a child born out of wedlock, usually the guy's got two or three children out of wedlock, and so we're already way downstream, and, and we've got all kinds of costs and, and social ills coming. So my point of intervention is to back up way, way before that and try to look at these couples long before that initial conception occurs. Uh, and one thing we have to do is look at the fact that we, we provide birth control uh, in, every, in government birth control centers in every county in the United States, with few exceptions, over 5 million low-income young adult women getting birth control each year, but we still have 1.5 million children born out of wedlock each year. Clearly, there's some limitations to this policy. One of the limitations is that no one is speaking to these young women about their goals in life. And clearly what you see is that, in, as, as Charles said, out-of-wedlock childbearing is occurring to the, to the poor. It's not occurring to the upper middle class. In the upper middle class, there's a sequence. Couples find each other. They get interested in each other. They make commitments. They get married. Then they have children. When you're looking at the poor, that sequence is actually reversed. Uh, The girl wants to have a baby. She deliberately has a child. Then she looks around for a guy who might be a responsible partner. Then she thinks about possibly about commitment. And marriage, to the extent she thinks about it at all, is some far distant horizon, the way that you might might be thinking about a vacation to Europe or something, something you might like to do but not something you really need to do uh, before starting a family in this world. I think that we have an enormous opportunity, and I can't guarantee any results, we have an enormous opportunity to go into this group and just say, if you're interested, let's talk about your life plans, your life goals. Let's talk about where you want to be and where your children want to be, and let's see if we can talk about what sets of choices you need, you should make in order to to fulfill those goals, and those goals don't include being on welfare and having your child be poor and so forth and so on. Don't know what will happen, but I think it's kind of a shame that we spend all this money and don't even have one minute of dialogue about meeting these real needs. Yeah, right right there. Uh, wait, wait for the microphone, and if you could identify yourself. Stephen Baskerville from the American Coalition for Fathers and Children. Just to follow up that last point, I think there are... Um, uh, uh, a number of people have argued, Mrs. Schlafly, for example, has done an extraordinary series of articles in which she argues that not only is child support driving people into the gray economy and into criminality, but that it's serving essentially the same purpose as welfare used to serve. In other words, it's providing an incentive on breaking up families. And not only is it providing a continued incentive for illegitimacy in the low-income communities, it's actually su- providing an incentive, a subsidy on divorce in the middle class. That the child support enforcement system is the only welfare system that is not means tested, and that is actually spreading now to the middle class, where some 83% of the cases now. All right, we need a question. Well, these, this distinction between the welfare and the welfare state, these ancillary programs that we've created around welfare, like child support enforcement, child protection services, which are essentially federal police, when do we start going after these? Um, Hayek warned that uh, the welfare state would create uh, not only social instability, but tyranny a threat to freedom should we start should we be starting is this the threat that we are seeing well my own view about child support um, is that in fact it's great to enforce it on married fathers i think married um, i think men who have children 
and marriage ought to have their feet held to the fire uh, for the full support of their children. That ought to be part of marriage. But I think, I think that it would be best if there was no child support requirement whatsoever for unmarried fathers. And the reason I think that is that I think it's a very healthy society in which a young woman grows up knowing that if she wants to have any legal claim on the father of her children, she has to marry him. That is an argument that I deeply believe and I have made on occasion um, that seems to go absolutely nowhere that most people seem to think, no, you want to hold people responsible if they, if they impregnate a woman. I think that here the difference as to whether you get negative or positive consequences on fertility, if you want to be very blunt about it, depends on the certainty of enforcement. So if you have a child support system that can be evaded, especially by the class of people who are the most likely targets of it, who can most easily disappear into the gray economy, you've got all sorts of negative outcomes. If you have a potential of 100% enforcement, it's like the deterrent effect of capital punishment if you had 100% executions of everybody who commits a crime of a certain type. It would turn out to have a huge deterrent effect. Well, the, what I just gave you as a scenario a minute ago, if you have every young man age 21 and older with a known income stream coming into a known bank account that can be tapped without any problem whatsoever by a simple court order, you got 100% enforcement, you're going to have very strong deterrent effects on siring children. Okay, um, there. White jacket. Al Milliken, uh, Washington Independent Writers Up. With the concern that has been expressed predicting the U.S. will increasingly look like Latin America with the underclass being separated or the upper class separating themselves from others, uh, how have you... Uh, reacted to the attacks which seem to have shaken up areas which for too long have been considered relatively safe. I'm thinking just here in Washington, D.C., uh, we saw attacks on tourists at the National Mall, uh, which seem unprecedented. And then in Georgetown, there was a murder. And I see just in the last few days, there was an armed robbery in the middle of the day. Um, is, uh, you know, and these are areas where I guess uh, the underclass are invading uh, the barbed wire and uh, gates have not been fully put up yet and they get extraordinary attention don't they extraordinary attention one of the things I find most fascinating is that uh, even though crime has gone down overall as it has very dramatically gone down as we've pursued some policies which have very effectively taken a lot of criminals off the streets uh, you, you, I still find it very hard to get a clear reading on whether crime has improved in the inner cities. How much has the reduction in overall crime also occurred in, in the inner cities where it's now safer to be out at night than it used to be? And I don't know, and the reason I don't know is that nobody writes that kind of story, as far as I can tell. Uh, I, I think the anecdotes you've just given are examples of the kind of thing which, if not very many of them happen, but they do happen, you will get increasingly stringent measures to keep it from happening. Not necessarily done by the government, but you will have people who formerly lived in Cleveland Park. Um, well, let me put the Cleveland Park, for those who are watching on television, is an affluent, very liberal section of Washington, D.C. Um, the people of, of Cleveland Park will raise more and more 
fences, whether metaphorical or real, to protect themselves. And we will do what we, again, referring to the middle class, upper middle class, and so forth, we will do whatever is necessary to wall ourselves off from the underclass. Um, and I think the attention that these stories get is an indication of how close to the surface of our concerns they are. i got time for two more questions. David? I'm David Bowes with Cato. Um, when I listen to NPR in the morning, the concerns about after 10 years of welfare reform are not the ones you two have talked about. Um, you've talked about how many people are still on welfare, how many people are in the underclass. What I hear on NPR is how many people need more help, how many people can't get to work because the transportation system doesn't work, can't go to work because they don't have child care, can't go to work because they don't have health insurance. So are they wrong? Are they looking at the wrong end of the uh, uh, problem? Are there problems that could be fixed in that regard? I think if you if you we had a hearing about two weeks ago in Ways and Means going over this and, and it really was as if you just had taken all of the speeches from 1996 on the left hand side of the political equation and just dusted them off and what it reminded me of was the line about the the Bourbon kings when they came back uh, after after Napoleon that, that that over that period of time of the revolution and the and the Napoleonic Empire that the kings had learned nothing and they had forgotten nothing. Uh, what you really are seeing here is a total rehash of everything that they said in 1995 about why welfare reform wouldn't work. Almost all of which has been shown to be incorrect. What I think we really need to do is move on to the next realm of the agenda here. Uh, again, in reference to the last question, I think both Charles and I believe with with what Daniel Patrick Moynihan used to believe, that communities where there are no stable adult male figures in the homes are communities that are asking for, for chaos and for violence. And for a very long time, it's been my policy objective to try to find a way to bring fathers back into these homes. I think, uh, and we don't know how to do that yet, but I think that we do know how to make welfare recipients work. We know how to bring the poverty rate down. I, I think the next uh, realm is, is to move on and deal with that problem rather than trying to pretend that there have been failures in welfare reform that, that really haven't really occurred at all. Uh, last last question, uh, white boss right there, and uh, then we'll get you some something to eat. Linda Greenberg, uh, Brinkman Publishing. I was interested in the idea of the underclass and does every society have an underclass? Is this part of our society, uh, let's say the underclass you're describing, um, what would be the percentage that would be considered normal? Uh, what is the percent, you know, when do you go over it? I don't know whether we're talking about something which is abnormal or normal or, you know, sort of how we look at this today. It, it's a concept that was first given a name uh, back in the mid-19th century uh, by a guy named Mayhew over in England. And th th there have been various names at various times, the disreputable poor, the undeserving poor, uh, the, the people who, the, the rabble. Uh, there is always a certain number of people who are hardcore out of the mainstream in the way I describe them. 
but the size of that subpopulation can vary dramatically. And just look at the United States and look at a period. Uh, let's, let's talk about black Americans uh, as of around 1950, let's say. Uh, who were experiencing systematic discrimination and oppression of all kinds that are unimaginable today. But look at the kinds of indicators that I just gave. In, in 1950, you still had on the order of, I could be off by five percentage points, I suppose, you had on the order of 85 to 90 percent of black children being born to married parents, 80 to 90 percent. So that's, that's huge you had crime rates which for black Americans in the 1950s were much lower, not only much lower than they are today, they were going down during the 1950s. That's huge. Labor force participation among young black males, despite a, a high unemployment rate in many cases, they were just as high as white males. There was no difference. It was basically up around 90-odd percent of all young black males who were in the labor force. So here you had a case of, of drastic poverty, much worse than you have today, of drastic disadvantage, much worse than you have today in the African-American community, and an underclass that was tiny in comparison to today. So the forget about the poor we shall have always have with us. We shall always have an underclass with us of some size, and the size of the underclass today is orders of magnitude larger than it ought to be and larger than it used to be in the United States of America. I, I would say the underclass is really defined by six behaviors. The first is out-of-wedlock childbearing, a lack of marriage, lack of fathers in the home. Second is low uh, male work participation. A third would be drug or substance abuse. Fourth is low levels of educational aspiration, low levels of educational work ethic. Fifth would be a tendency to violence and predatory behavior, particularly within the underclass community. And then uh, sixth is usually some sort of government dependency uh, piled on top of this. Clearly, not every family participates in all six of those behaviors, but they tend to cluster together as Daniel Patrick Moynihan warned us 40 years ago. And, uh, and clearly the magnitude of the number of families that fall into this paradigm or is, is variable. And it is very clear that this is, we need to deal with these behaviors. We need to, this is really what we should be focusing on. Now, welfare reform, to, except for the degree that it symbolically tried to deal with illegitimacy, welfare reform did not deal with those behaviors. It involves making single moms work, which, as Charles Murray has always said, is not terribly correlated with this stuff at all. Uh, so don't blame welfare reform for failing to cure the underclass because it didn't even really try. Uh, so I say again, the next step in welfare reform is really to look at the absence of fathers in these homes and to begin to see whether or not there's something we can do as a society, not government versus private sector, but any part of our society can begin to do to put the family back together again. We don't have a lot of good solutions here, but I think we have some promising ideas for the future that we can work on both in the private sector and the public sector. Well, I want to thank both Charles and Robert for coming out here today, and I want to thank all of you for coming out on a summer's afternoon. Uh, we have some snacks and uh, something to drink upstairs. This was, a, this was an important milestone. Uh, for all that we've uh, suggested that welfare reform had limitations and didn't achieve everything that people said it might, 
this was still a very important cha- sea change, I think. It was the first time we've sort of cut back on an entitlement uh, in a long time. Uh, the, the trend has always been for more government. This was one of the first changes we've made in that in a long time. It's important to recognize that and to recognize where we've come, what we have achieved, and what we haven't. Thank you all very much and appreciate your coming once more. Thank you.